Hi, this is Greg Voison inviting you to listen to our latest Inside Personal Growth Podcast, number 878 with Michael Clinton about his new book entitled Roar, Into the Second Half of Your Life Before It's Too Late. This podcast, number 878, is brought to you by Jim Hewling, a co-author with Chris McChesney and Sean Covey of the Wall Street bestseller as a revised and updated edition of the book entitled The Four Disciplines of Execution, Achieving Your Wildly Important Goals. In my interview with Jim, we talk about goal setting, executing your goals, and focusing on your wildly important goal. The 4DX process is not theory. It is a proven set of practices that represents a new way of thinking essentially to thriving in today's competitive climate. Making this second edition book a no that no business leader can afford to miss. If you want to learn more about Jim Hewling and his new book that he co-authored, please visit his website at www.jimhewling.com. That's Jim J I M H U L I N G dot com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to my interview with author Michael Clinton about his new book entitled "Roar Into the Second Half of Your Life." Before it's too late. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from New York today is Michael Clinton. And Michael has a new book coming out called Roar into the Second Half of Life Before It's Too Late. Michael, good day to you. How are you doing? Greg, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to the show. Oh, you're quite welcome, and it's a pleasure having you on, and this is a topic that considering COVID, I was listening to Chairman Powell today talk about all the people that have taken early retirement because of COVID, and they're looking at the actual impact it's going to have financially on the government. So, you know, your topic is very timely. It's for a lot of people because they're rethinking their lives, and I want to let our listeners know a little bit about you. Michael is the former president and publishing director of Hearst Magazines and now serves as special media advisor to Hearst Corporation's CEO. He's also an author and photographer who believes that everyone should strive to live their fullest life possible, particularly in life's second half. And I guess it just depends, Michael, when that second half is. He's an avid traveler. He had experiences in 124 countries, run marathons on seven continents, He's a private pilot, part owner of a vineyard in Argentina, has started a nonprofit foundation, holds two master's degree, and still has a long list of life experiences he plans to tackle. He resides in New York today, but he also has a place in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And this is a Beyond Words book. And for my listeners, the pre-orders are being taken now for the book, but the book actually breaks September 7th. So, But you'll be able to get the book in Kindle format and or an audiobook, which Michael just informed me that he's recording. So, Michael, in the introduction of this book, you know, you write about your start in publishing at age 22, laying on the sofa with 60 bucks in your pocket, <laughs> which was which was a lot of money probably back then. <laughs> at age 39, you stated you had this epiphany. I know a lot of people don't have epiphanies that early about this, but you needed more out of life that you created the concept of life layering and began your personal 
R-O-A-R, ROAR into life, and that is an acronym. If you would, tell us a little bit about the early years and how at 39 you had this epiphany when usually this comes so much later for people. And also, why don't you let our listeners know what ROAR, R-O-A-R, stands for? Yeah, thanks, Greg. First of all, that, that was a wonderful introduction. And I was as I was listening to it, I was thinking about my very early days. I I came from a very poor working class family in Pittsburgh. And so, um, you know, when I think about how my life has, has evolved, I'm quite grateful that, you know, so many experiences I've been able to have. I, I guess, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book are people called reimagineers. And, you know, I think that you know, I was one of those early on. I stepped out of a, a working class family that had no higher education and no contacts and no real, you know, ability to help me move forward. And I moved to New York City, as you said, with 60 bucks in my pocket and a couch to sleep on to try and move into the publishing world. And, um, you know, that was kind of a, you know, when you're 22, you do a lot of bold things, but there I was and I jumped in and, um, you know, I began to find my way and build my connections and had no, you know, I had no special opportunities. I had to find my, my own opportunities. So what happened is I worked, you know, hard and had some luck and timing on my side. And I became the publisher of GQ magazine at 34 years old. And I was the youngest publisher in the industry at the time. So I had a lot of early career success, but all I was doing was working, working, working. And when I was around 39, I was on a, uh, on a plane home from a business trip. And I said, I've got to get a life. I got to do something that's going to give me more dimension in my life. So hence the word life layering was born. In that particular instance, I decided to do three things, go to race car driving school, climb Mount Kilimanjaro and take a flying lesson because I wanted to shake it up. And I ended up becoming a pilot, as you mentioned. And what I decided is my 40s were going to become my adventure years. So that was a layer that I put I put on top of my my work life, and then in my fifties I added a layer of creativity with books and photography and writing, and that became my it's like a cake. It was like another layer, and so forth. So this notion of life layering, you know, you can build a very robust and interesting life if you just keep adding layers to it and never giving up the layers below. And so there's a chapter about life layering and how you do it. ROAR is an acronym, so the book is in four parts, four easy sections, understandable, readable, accessible. The R stands for reimagine your life before others do it because stuff happens, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about that, hopefully. Uh, the O is own who you are. You know, you got to own where you came from, which I learned to do coming from where I came from. You also own all of the things that are going to allow you to move yourself forward in the second half of your life. You know, act is the A, act on what's next for you. And that's where life layering comes in. And then the final R is reassessing all of your relationships because the people around you, whether it's work, family, friends, community, they're really the ones who are going to help you facilitate into a new, a new second half future. So that's the acronym for ROAR. Well, it's, you know, anybody out there today who's listening to this podcast right now, we have thousands of listeners. If you are in, in any point, right now, reassessing your life. And I know we do it from time to time. And maybe with this COVID, it accelerated things. I know you mentioned that COVID-19 has played what you call the great pause and that people now more than ever 
are reflecting on their lives. And what are some of the questions you would leave these listeners with today that they would get them thinking about their life and the possibility of the changes? I mean, you were on a plane. Obviously, your mind starts to work, starts to ask questions. You start to listen to the mind chatter. I mean, it's like, how am I going to get this done? And I think this is an important element is just, you know, what are some of these questions I can ask and, and then journal or write or do something to get this out? Yeah, there's no question that the uh, experience that we all went through globally was an existential moment for all of us in COVID as we were hunkered down. And I think there was a lot of self-reflection going on. And you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, these people are checking out of retirement. There's something called the big quit that's going on. People of all ages who are saying, I'm going to leave this job. I'm going to leave this career because they um, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about this during their their COVID experience. And, you know, I like to say that 45, 50, if, you know, you've lived a, you know, an adult life, everyone talks about a midlife crisis. I call it about, I call it a midlife awakening that you become much more aware of yourself and what you're, what you want to do. And one of the questions to ask is, you know, when you wake up in the morning, are you excited about what your day is going to be? And one of the great stories in the book was a you know high-powered Wall Street executive who got his MBA at the University of Michigan and was on a fast track. And in his late 40s, he was miserable and decided that he had given up really what his passion was in his early 20s. And he left Wall Street and became a uh, went back to school and got a degree in adolescent education and is teaching math in the inner city schools in, in New York City public school system. And this guy said he couldn't be happier. He's doing, he's doing something that was really his, his original life calling. So you know in your, in your mind or your heart if you are on that wrong track. So you have to have a, you know, a good conversation with yourself. W- one of the things that I suggest that people do, I always get a great reaction when I say this, 24 hours of no technology. No technology at all. You know, when you spend that 24 hours and you are having human interactions or taking a walk and taking a run or whatever you do, you, you, it's amazing how things bubble up in your head and about your work, about where you live, about your partner and your, 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 your family. And those are the things, those, those, those pure thoughts that come to your head, you have to listen to them. And as you say, you write them down. And you've got to mind those. And I think in the book, what I found is that the 40 people I interviewed, I would say pretty much everyone said it was a two-year process to really go through, what do I want next? And all of these people, by the way, did a 180-degree turn in their life. So, you know, it wasn't like they were just sort of evolving in their career and moved to another company. They literally changed their their life. There was a, a woman who was a book editor for 25 years and in her 50s she decided she wanted to become a doctor. Wow. You know, yeah. that is a big switch. And today she's in her early 60s and she is a doctor, but the that she took was inspirational and courageous. And so but she had that uh, aha moment that she listened to and said I'm going to jump in head first. Well, I and think that the key is, and I did an interview with Stephen Cutler, The Art of Impossible. Nothing mm-hmm. is impossible. You mm-hmm. know, we look at magi- magicians, 
and the sleight of hand and how long it takes them to craft that, right? Um, so that they become really good at what they do. And I, I think what's important is you have to have a curious mind. Uh, you have to have a mind that's open to new possibilities. And I think most of these people that are questioning, that is, a am going to say, an attitude that you have to move forward with. Now, you mentioned that we do not need to wait for something to happen to us to reimagine our lives. You state that we need to be in a constant state of reimagining, thinking through the next phase of every aspect of life. How would you advise the listeners to start the process? And would you be willing to tell that story about uh, Jim Gath, that highly successful executive who set the stage and how he reimagined his life? I think the stories in there that you tell really help people to kind of crystallize what these people went through, and at the same time, give them ideas? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. I mean, for, for sure, um, you know, we're in a, in a time where, you know, people are going to be laid off, be displaced, um, you know, aged out, which is, is a whole other conversation. But what are you doing to proactively think about this? You know, if you're in an industry that's in decline, you know, I was in the in, in, for a long time in the magazine publishing industry, which was being disrupted by digital. And, you know, you had to think about, you know, what's the future of the industry? You can you can reboot and get a lot of digital experience, and that's important moving forward. But you really have to um, think about what is, you know, what's your plan B, so to speak. And by the way, that's not just in work. That's in where you live and, you know, your relationships as well. And once again, that's that's putting in the time. Jim Gaff, it's a great, it was one of my, you know, great stories that I loved hearing his story because when he was 50, Jim's business exploded and he was forced to go bankrupt. His wife left him and he realized that he was an alcoholic and had to go to AA. And as he said, he was 50 years old and he was sitting under a tree and said, okay, this is the first day of the, as they say, the rest of my life. And what am I going to do? And Jim found a path through his early young interest in horses. And he became um, involved in an in a, uh, organization on the West Coast in California of horses uh, as therapy. And he worked in this particular uh, place in Malibu. And Flash forward, you know, within the next X number of years, he ended up uh, moving to Arizona and he now runs something that he owns called the Tierra Madre uh, Horse Sanctuary. And it is a, uh, they take in horses that are, have been abused and or are aging. And those horses work with autistic children and uh, adults. And Jim is in his uh, late 60s now, and he lives on the property. And he said, I can't believe I spent my whole first 50 years, you know, chasing all the things that we chase. Um, and I couldn't be happier in my life now. So he was kind of forced at a bottom rock, rock bottom level to sort of reassess money. And he found the story in the book about how he got to this place that he is today and claims that he's... Never, never been more fulfilled and happy. And that's a good story. That's a good thing. Yeah, it it was really a good story. And and I related a bit because I donated time to a nonprofit charity with kids with autism. And we had a place for horses. 
And that oh. one in particular, because we used to use the horses with kids with autism, um, because it was one of the places where they felt safe uh, and comfortable. Um, oh. And I thought what Jim did, did with uh, the kids was really great. Now, in every one of these chapters, you know, Michael, you give some great takeaways for each of the chapters in the book. And in the reimagine chapter, uh, you the takeaways you state to be true to yourself and that time is running out. Uh, can you comment on these takeaways? Those were two that I pulled from there. I think there were about six or so. Comment on those takeaways and any other takeaways um, from that particular section of the book, book which is around reimagining. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think people who are listening in who are 40 or 50 or 60, all of a sudden have begun to realize how fast it all goes. So, you know, a minute ago you were 30 and now you're 50. And you realize that you've, uh, I hate the word later, L-A-T-E-R, because everybody keeps saying, I'll do that later, I'll do that later. And then all of a sudden you're 50 and you haven't done anything, or you're 60 and you haven't done anything on the front that you're interested in. So life goes whizzing by. It's kind of a cliche, but it's true. One of the, the books that I reference, and by the way, the book has lots of tools and resources and websites and you know practical advice for all of these topics that we're, we're discussing, because I wanted it to be very actionable. But one of the books I reference is a is an amazing book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And it was written by a hospice nurse who for years and years would listen to people as they were, you know, moving on to, to, um, you know, the next world. And she aggregated all of the comments and conversations in five, five core, uh, learnings. And one of them was, I wish I had been more true to myself. I wish I had stopped listening to, you know, my parents, my spouse, my kids, my uncle, my whomever, that I really followed my own true North star. And I think that that is so critical for people. And I'll give you a personal story in our family. My mother, at age of 64, asked my father for a divorce after 40 years of marriage and six children. And, you know, there were no other people involved. There was no drama to this. My mother finally said to herself, I want this for my future. And you, Joe, my father, you want something else. And she had this sort of aha moment. And my parents got divorced. My mother lived for another 25 years. And she lived a life that I would say was true to herself. She had been a travel agent, so she traveled more. She went backpacking in Europe in her 60s. She moved to England for a while, you know, and she, you know, had was was doing all the things that she really wanted to do. While my dad, who was really more of a homebody, wanted to sort of, you know, tinker in the garden. And that's what he does. And he's remarried and he's lived his life. But my mother who was a high school graduate and really didn't have uh, any real financial means, made this bold decision at 64. And she would say, you know, as I spoke to her over the years, that she finally got to a place where she was true to herself at that at 64. She loved her kids. She had a good marriage, you know, a good run, but she wanted something else out of life. And it's a great story. It it is, and I and obviously one that influenced you, and probably influenced this book as well, because you know you look at it, everyone, you know, you have a love for your mother, and you probably really appreciated the fact that she spoke up and did what she did, and um, I know that's true, you know, being true to yourself, and you say 
in the own where we came from, which you talked about, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. middle class, mm-hmm. you discussed that we all have a past, we all have baggage, we carry it with us, um, but we have to own it. And you state that in the ROAR survey, intro survey, that 43% mm-hmm. of the respondents said that they tended to dwell on the mistakes and rehash them. Now, um, how? what advice would you say to kind of forgive ourselves for any of our past mistakes and not dwell on them because it's really a waste of energy and a waste of time. But, you know, when you see older people, a lot of them are doing this. I mean, your survey is right. 43%. I'm I'm surprised it was only 43%. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, first of all, we had a great survey that, you know, really interesting findings throughout the book. And it was really a terrific um, cross-section of, of people who, who from all walks of life and all socioeconomic levels. So it was really an interesting, interesting findings. But yeah, I think this issue of beating yourself up about what happened in the past is sort of a lot of wasted energy. And it's also, there's something else going on there, which is creating, um, creating this excuse for not being able to move forward. And you know, one, one of the examples that I used in the book, and you might remember, is that that person who we all know who is, you know, 48 years old and still lamenting the, the, the breakup of their college sweetheart, and, you know, they're hanging on to it. Well, there, there's something else going on there that was, um, that is, you, you got to get under the surface of these things because, you know, when you're, when you're 19 and you're in college, you know, love is fresh, you know, and it's all exciting and it's all new and you're living in a moment in time where you're, you're free and you're learning things and you have no real responsibility and all, all the above. And that was a, that was a different time in a different place. And, you know, you, you, you know, have to put it in that context and whatever the breakup was is irrelevant. It was just sort of a moment. And, you know, maybe the, the hidden, the hidden story here is that maybe you're really not in love with the partner that you settled with and the person that you're currently married with. And that's a whole other discussion that you've got to, one's got to sort out for themselves. Um, so, you know, we hang on to things that are more myths in our past. You know, it was better with that person. I wish I hadn't moved to this town or we were happier when we lived over there, but there's something that else that's going on. You, you've got to dissect and then release yourself from, uh, because you're right. People put up all these barriers for their own growth based on things that don't have relevance anymore. And, this, and by the way, you can't change it anyway. So you might as well just sort of lean into it, acknowledge it and, and, you know, cleanse yourself and move forward. And that well, is, you, um, you know, you tell yeah. a story that exemplifies this, which is a, a longtime colleague of yours, uh, David Carey. Um, <clears throat> and I was wondering if you'd tell that story because obviously this is somebody that, you know, you put in the book, it was important enough but it actually really addresses what we're talking about. Yeah, well, you know, David, a longtime colleague, and we bonded because we both come from, you know, very modest, uh, you know, humble beginnings. He, he he was from Long Beach, California. His father worked in a in a hardware store. His mother was a homemaker, and he he like me climbed the ranks in the publishing world, and you know, we were we were both uh, at the top of the top of our game. But the thing that is so great about David that, that I relate to is that, you know, we never got caught up in the seat we sat in. You know, the seat is is the symbolic thing. So, you know, we got to go to the Super Bowl and the NBA Finals and the Grammy Awards and, 
you know, met presidents and celebrities and all that stuff. But it wasn't because of who we were. It was because of the seat that we sat in. And I think that what is really interesting is that everybody who works for a company, unless you own your own company, sit in a, in a, what I call a temporary seat. And mm. that temporary seat is going to go away at some point. Yeah. And so if you wrapped up your identity in that seat, what happens you're in when trouble. that goes away? You're, you're in trouble. trouble. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to really start cultivating the who am I person. So, you know, when you step out of that seat, or by the way, you're pushed out of that seat, um, you know, we all know those people who are completely lost. So doing the, doing the work now is, is good. It's a good thing. Well, you know, you, it, you see that happen so much, right? And then people kind of fall from the throne, as they say, um, because all their power was tied up in their seat. And mm-hmm. I think you make a really important uh, distinction here that you really have to know who you are and be strong as an individual uh, and know what you want, like your mother did, or something to that degree. I mean, she was willing to tell your father as much as it might have been painful to the family. I think in the end, it was probably kind of uh, a joyous thing because you're watching your mother grow and your father grow and father's remarried, and it's a great story. Now, I want to speak about owning your own numbers. Um, mm. This is, you're getting down to the, <laughs> to the math part, but there were three areas in which to know your numbers. You said your physical, your financial, and your age and prepar- mm. preparation for your finitude, right? You're going right. to say, hey, I'm, I'm 67, you're 67. So mm. uh, can you speak with the listeners about the importance of being aware of these numbers and things that they can do to prepare for the feature. And also, if you would, you you referenced a book uh, by Lee Eisenberg called What Do You Need for the Rest of Your Life and What Will It Cost? And I'd never heard of the book, and I would think that, you know, hey, that would be one besides your book that people might want to go out and buy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's one of my favorite chapters because it's really the practical chapter of everyday living, regardless of who you are. You right. can be a carpenter or you can be the CEO, but you know, you've got to know these fundamentals. And it's shocking to me when I talk to particularly men, I hate to say it, when you ask them, when was the last time you had a physical or what's your blood pressure or have you had a colonoscopy? And they look at you like, mm, I haven't done any of that. You know, that it, it's once again, the, the, the core of having a great long life. And by the way, if you're 45 today there's a, and you're healthy, there's a really good shot that you're going to look to be 90. And mm-hmm. so th- those are a lot of years to fill to be, you know, involved, engaged, productive. But you got to know what your health indicators are. So that's well, you want to you want to have a quality of life. You can live to ninety, but if you're in constant pain and you're you're anguishing over everything, that's why you want to know your health, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And and the in the other part of that, I mean, you got to know what your cholesterol is and your LDLs and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of like basic. And then the other thing is you've got to know not just what your Obviously, your your assets are, but how much money do you want and need? The book you referenced, the first the first uh, title of it, beyond the subtitle, is called The Number. And I love that. And then it has the line that you mentioned by Lee Eisenberg. And the number is 
sitting down and doing that calculation of how much money do you think you're going to need? And by the way, can your money last you until 90? And if it can't, how are you going to earn extra money? Or what are you going to do? And so a lot of people don't do that homework either. And this is, this is sort of your glide path into what you want to do next. You know, one of the, the biggest um, cohorts of entrepreneurs, this comes from the Kaufman Foundation in Kansas City, people who are 55 to 64 who are launching businesses, entrepreneurs who are investing money into businesses that they're interested in, passions, all the above. And that's great. And that's exciting. But what about your, your cost of living that goes off of that? So you got, you got to know your numbers and you got to know, um, you know where that takes you over the years. And then, you know, the other thing which always surprises me is when you talk to couples or family members or friends and they haven't sort of sorted out the basics of the reality that we are all going to leave. We're all going to leave this planet someday. So mm -hmm. do you have your ducks in a row? Do you want, uh, do you have a will? Do you have a do not resuscitate? Do you want to be buried or cremated? Do you want a celebration or do you want everyone wringing their hands? Crying? What do you prepare, prepare yourself, just having the practical things in order, give you the foundation on all those fronts to be able to soar into your next, into your next big, big exciting chapter. But you got to do the, the fundamentals first. Well, I think there was an old saying, and you probably remember this, people spend more time planning their vacation than they do their future. <laughs> and the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, what Michael's talking about here is so important for all of us to just, hey, look, if you spent as much time, you know, planning your future, right? You put a little bit of time in it each month, um, figuring it out. Um, because, you know, it's the people that don't have plans that end up having those challenges. And I think right. that's it. Right. Now, sometimes, you know, you strike on it and, and a mother or father or aunt or uncle leave you a bunch of money and cool. That's good. You inherited, but make sure that you, um, are a good steward of that. Right. Um, what yeah. is it? Uh, the statistics about people that win the lottery and then within, a year and a half of winning the lottery, they, they don't have any of the money left. And you're like, really? How could that be? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, so can you briefly speak about the other two owns? You, you talk about own, that's O-W-N. Um, own your wins and strengths and opportunities and successes as well as own your losses, weaknesses, failures, and threats. These were also part of the own section of the book. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a there's a great um, and there. Are, this is one tool, and there are others in the books as well. It's called the SWOT analysis. S W O O T. For your listeners who've been in business, they may they understand they know that because it. it's a it's a business tool, right? Yeah. But it can be applied to your personal life as well. Um, because it's Straight, a good way strength, to sort weaknesses, of, threats, and opportunities, right? Or, yes, uh, however, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yes, S W O T. Yes, well, yeah. yeah. And you know, it is, um, you know, it is a great way to sort through. I go back to the magazine industry. You know, one of the threats in the magazine industry is print was being very challenged and disrupted by digital. Mm -hmm. so that's a threat. That's a total threat. But what's the opportunity if you're in that industry or any industry that's being disrupted? The people who are um, who are in that industry learned how to become digital experts. 
and they retooled themselves. So the opportunity they had was to stay in their industry but to learn something new as opposed to being, um, you know, in a, uh, you know, stuck situation. So that's, you, you can do that, you know, analysis and cross, cross over to, from the threat to the opportunity in any, any part of your life. You know, one of the things I, I acknowledged early on is, you know, I'm a whiz at P&Ls and financial statements, but I have a fundamental weakness in what was, you know, mathematics in school. I was not a STEM guy. I was a, um, you know, a, a, a social, social science guy. So I knew that mathematics as a discipline was a weakness of mine. And I always had to make sure I had people around me who were better than me and were better at math than I was in, in my, uh, in my business career as an example mm-hmm. to do an analysis and stuff like that. But, you know, you, you, and failure, you know, your, your, your weakness Failure is a great learning tool. I've always said they should be a course. There should be a course in colleges about, and because we all know great stories of people who failed and came back in a new way that were just, you know, allowed them to be successful. So, the SWOT analysis is a great personal tool for people. Yes, and the failure part, um, I like to refer to it as learning lessons. You know, if you if a failure is only a failure if you look at a failure. I've had plenty. And the way I look at them now is what did I learn from that that I don't want to do again? Mm. I don't want to repeat that again. And I think if on the learning line, right, if you say, hey, life's a learning lesson, what are those things along the learning lines that you're able to bring forward and know didn't work? And what are the things that you've done that have been successful that you want to keep doing? Um, and I think that's really a very important thing uh, for people. Now, yeah. you state in the chapter, act courageous and don't look back, that we need to rid ourselves of the ideas that now that we are at a certain age, that we need to act like something. We need to move slower. We need to walk with the cane. We got to have the, you know, whatever and become old uh, in the way we dress and act. And you see this, we, you know, you talked about this kind of earlier, um, but what advice would you give to a person that's fallen into these, the mindset, I'm going to say, and then the mindset created a habit of acting oh. old and it's, and it's hard to break it. You know, the other day I was, I was going down the street and nothing against it. I see this guy, old kind of gray hair, nothing against him driving kind of a, an older car, you know, the top down, the radio going, whatever. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, he's, he's kind of playing the whole, the whole scene, right. And not in judgment, that's okay. Um, But really embracing that. And I think there is a time when you do embrace your age. What would you tell people if they're trying to embrace this old stuff too soon? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's a great topic. I mean, we could do a whole hour on this. You know, w- we live, uh, especially in Western cultures, but especially in the U.S., we live in an ageist culture. And, you know, there needs to be a reckoning because we, you know, let's start with the images that are all around us in advertising and images in, in marketing and, and movies. You know, I like to say, well, if you watch the network news, the advertising is more depressing than the news um, because, you know, a lot of the advertising of pharmaceutical companies and the old people that are have ailments and they're showing people, you know, over 50 or 60 who are 
struggling. And, you know, that is such, those are such negative images. And if you think about the average 50, 60, 70 year old today, they're tech yeah. savvy, you know, they're act, act, active and athletic by, you know, doing something. They are not brand loyal. You know, they're buying new things. They've got a lot of money, as you referenced. You know, the by the year 2032, 50% of the economy in the U.S. is going to be driven by people 50 plus. And by the right. way, that'll include, that'll include the millennials who are going to be, you know, hitting 50 plus. And so right. we have this old fashioned construct. And so what happens is, as an individual, we create self-imposed ageism on ourselves. We start mm-hmm. saying, well, I have to start behaving this way because I'm now 60 or I have to start dressing this way. And I like to say we need to blow that up because it's no longer age appropriate. It's person appropriate. And um, Most you know, certainly. Those, those are the things. Yeah. So, you know, we, we take on these behaviors that we self-impose on ourselves and we have to stop and say, well, wait a minute. Why? You know, when I when I turned 60, I ran a marathon on Antarctica and everyone yeah. said, wow, wow, you did that at 60? And I said, yeah, but hold on a minute. I was in Toronto running the Toronto Marathon and I watched the first 100-year-old person cross the finish line of the Toronto Marathon. The first 100-year-old who ever ran a marathon in the world. <laughs> yeah, and I know that, you know, it's, um, I'm an avid cyclist and a, a friend invited me to go on this thousand mile bike ride down into Mexico. And it's all planned and everything. And I'm going to do it. And the right. reality is, is that, you know, at, at any age, if you've maintained your health, you said it earlier, right. Right. um, all of these things are possible. Um, you know, we're seeing, uh, octogenarians uh, running marathons and running ultra marathons and you know it's it's just there for you but and then the the flip side of the coin is like you said the nightly news is focused on and is feeding a story that you're old and you need this pill because you have restless leg syndrome or you have something and then the side effects are so so worse that, that you know that you're doing it but they're trying to sell you something to say hey we can make you better and right, if, right. for some of those people and i think better is a mindset and it's not buying into um what society has done break the status quo uh you know that that's what's going on here um you tell a great story about acting courageously, uh, and it's uh, the one of Michael Evans, uh, who developed this wine business in Argentina. And in your bio, you must have gone along with him because yeah. <laughs> you've got to, you've got to been. Can you tell his story? And what about Michael? Do you believe he benefited from the result of following his passion? Now he was what in his fifties when he did it. No, he was actually younger. He's um, so Michael was a uh, working for a political candidate who lost his bid, right? And he he said, "Okay, I'm going to go take a vacation, and I always want to go to South America." And he went to Argentina, and when he talk, talk about opportunity and striking while the as they say the iron is hot, he was in Argentina in the Uco Valley, which is near Mendoza, which is a wine growing region, and he saw what was happening in that region of all of this new, these new uh, boutique small wineries that were opening. Right. And 
that's where Malbec has grown. And you probably know that Malbec's become a very popular wine, especially in America. And Michael met a, um, at a wine tasting room, met, a, met an Argentine whose family was in the wine business. And flash forward, they put together a business plan and ended up buying property and creating something called Vines of Mendoza. You can go on to vinesofmendoza.com and see it. And they have and now it's fifteen hundred acres. Now it went from huge. sixty it's acres huge. to fifteen hundred acres. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, ten, it's ten years old. Uh-huh. Michael, um, Michael, you know, with Pablo and another fellow were the the founders. They so he decided he's going to start this business in Argentina, knowing nothing about Argentina. He the, the early money came from friends and family, and his credit card. And, you know, he's built this world-class uh, vineyard with a, an amazing world-class resort. You know, I, yes, I, some friends and I ended up becoming, you know, a small part of this in, in our little um, corner of the, of, the, of the vineyard. But, um, you know, here he was having no idea that this would be something in his future. He was, he was in, his, um, in his mid-40s at the time. And, you know, it was one of those things. It was serendipity. And serendipity is such a great, you know, phenomena, isn't it? When you see an opportunity in front of you, it's a business. Or, you know, you have a, you meet someone who all of a sudden, you know, a little sort of romantic flair comes up and it was serendipity. You sat next to them on an an airplane or a ski, ski lift. You know, just things happen and we have to have our antennas up for the serendipities that allow us to, you know, experience new things and take us to new places. And Michael Most was a definitely. Of that. He's a, you have yeah. great stories in the book. I just, for my yeah. listeners, it's wonderful stories. You know, um, in the reassessing your personal relationship with ourself, okay, I get it. Our friends, our family, something like what your mom did, have an opportunity to grow and transform. You mentioned that you read self-help books, uh, mm-hmm. everything from, you you name it, Norman Vincent Peale, because uh, that was a big one in my time that I used to listen to, mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. All, to all of them, uh, Dale Carnegie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you said these self-help books, that they affected how you created a relationship with yourself. How did these books influence you positively and what effect did the knowledge that you extracted from these positive self-help books have in shaping your relationships in your life? Yeah, you know, I think um, when you come from a place that's um, where there's not a lot of opportunity and you don't see a future based on where you are, this was my, you know, working class background and family, you, if you're curious for even from a young age or any age, you start, you start reaching out into finding out where else you might go. And someone would ask, someone once asked me in an interview, um, you know, boy, you really have done a lot. Is this overcompensating for your, your poor childhood? And I said, well, if you want to, if you want to be my psychologist, I guess the answer is yes, because the bucket was empty. <laughs> there, there was nothing in the bucket. So I yeah. had to figure out what was I going to put in the bucket. And, you know, my mother's mother, my grandmother was a huge influence on me. My father was a huge interest influence on me. Um, the book is dedicated to my dad. Um, 
I had an English teacher who saw my curiosity of reading and you know, reading is the, um, you know, the great elixir of all things, especially when you're young. And so it began to allow me to formulate my own, um, my own thoughts about what did I want in my life and what did I want to experience and how did I want to experience it. And you can do that at any age. You know, right. you, you know I, I was doing it as a young you know, teenager, but you can do that at 40 or 60 or at any age because, um, you know, that is, uh, you know, it should be a lifelong you know, idea. And so um, I found a lot of the through the, the self-help books that you you mentioned, but I also found it through people around me who really cared about me. And those in this instance were my Well, father, it's, my it's you know, when you think about it, it's always the hero's journey. You know, Joseph yeah. Campbell, you go out, somebody mm-hmm. helps you along the path. Uh, yeah. You know, that's the story we've we've lived and have lived for a long time. But it's a good one. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. You're going to struggle. You're going to have challenges along the way. The most important thing is, is that you filled your mind with this and you're responsible for your own actions. So it was your choice uh, to climb this ladder and to work at Hearst and to, as you say, you knew that you were only in a seat, but you knew that early, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's an important thing. The power didn't go to your head. Um, my wife always says that this whole thing is really the test of, of um, power and money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in the conclusion to your book, you state that it doesn't matter how old we are, just like you said a second ago, because we can begin it at any age. I think you mm-hmm. can begin this in your 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. What are three mm-hmm. takeaways that you'd want to leave the audience with uh, in embracing who they are? Um, mm-hmm. what they would like to become and what contribution they can still make in the world, no matter what their age. Mm-hmm. No good. It's a good question. You know, I think that um, I'm going to go to the construct of um, taking the first step. And, you know, one of those things of taking the first step is going back to your younger self and, what is it in your younger self that you gave up, that you abandoned? And, you know, there's a great story in the book of a guy named Rob Smith, who was a very successful executive. And it's in his 50s, just sort of said this, you know, this is not working for me anymore. And he went off and took a, a trip. And he was in South America and Peru. And he went through that ayahuasca, I'm going to mispronounce it, ceremony which is kind of like a, almost like a hallucinogenic. Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, thank you. Ayahuasca. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And he said he was sitting on a rock and he looked across the water and he saw his 13-year-old self and he said, I'm so sorry that I left you. And Uh and that gave me, it still gives me goosebumps because, Uh you know, we, we leave ourselves, we leave ourselves as we become adults and we abandon so many of the things. So what were the things that were part of your younger self? Rob quit his job and he ended up becoming, you know, a started a new nonprofit and, and, and focused on, you know, you know, new topics that were, had nothing to do with his business life. And he's you know, doing that. <clears throat> so, you know, that's one, one good thing. You know, I like to say people, 
you know, who I mentioned this hundred year old runner, Afalja Singh is his name. He's a British Sikh and he uh, is still alive. He's a hundred and I think almost 110. He's not running marathons anymore, but he did not start. And his first marathon, he was in his nineties. And so people always say, you know, I can't do this. Well, take the first step buy a pair of shoes, go take a walk around the high school track, then take two loops, then three, then start jogging. And you too, you know, can, you may not want to run a marathon. That's not the point, but you know, you can, you know, taking the first step in anything is so critical because it begins to set you on a path. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't have the money or I don't have the resources. And what, what the book talks about is there, there are lots of resources and there is a lot of money out there that you can, you know, if you want to become a pilot at 60, a private pilot, and you have no money, there are organizations that give scholarships to older, older people who want to become pilots. There's a great uh, in, uh, firm now called Primetime Partners, and they only provide venture capital for, you know, older entrepreneurs who want to start businesses to help um, the uh, those people who are living longer with services and products and so forth. So yeah. the, the fact that there's no money is an excuse. The fact that there are no resources is, is an excuse. There's so much there that you can tap into to, to chase your, your, your interests. You know, there was a, there's a, well, wouldn't you, um, wouldn't you agree though, that when you have a curious mindset that the serendipity occurs and you think, well, you know, I think if you're willing to explore, look, you're an explorer, um, but explorers are curious. You're curious. You want to see something, you want to experience something. And I think from that mindset, you know, you can find a passion, even if you just took the curiosity and you string the passions together to develop your purpose. Um, And then the purpose turns into a goal and the goal then turns into the grit and determination that you need to execute on the goal. But if you Mm -hmm. really look at it, it starts with, so let's say you get some focus and then you focus is for free and then you're curious and then you find some passions and you string the passions together and you go, yeah, I'm going to go for it. And at any age, you can do that. You don't have to be, any age, right. any age, yeah. you can do that yeah. as long as you still have your mind. Um, yeah. So the reality is it's there. And yeah. go ahead. I was just going to give you one or two great examples. You know, you know, Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, the, the mayor of Santa Fe, Alan Weber, who was 69, um, and he didn't get involved in community, you know, politics and public service until he was in his early 60s. And, you know, you may not want to be the mayor of your city or whatever, but, you know, for sure, you know, that's, that's a path. Or if you, you always have this interest in becoming a painter and you start taking painting lessons at 60, you can paint for 25 years. So oh, yeah. Yeah, this yeah. gets back to your point. Yeah. Well, Michael, the book Roar into the second half of your life before it's too late is a great place for people to start. I'm going to encourage him to uh, pick up a copy off of Amazon. We're going to have a link to Amazon. We'll have a link to Michael's website as well. There you can learn more about Michael, the book, 
um, everything that you need to know. The resources are in the book, as long as you read it. That's the most important thing. Um, and the reality is you've, you've kind of given somebody at any age a book they can pick up and stimulate their mind to be thinking about what they can create for themselves now and into the future. And I want to acknowledge you for that because obviously you're living it. You're an example of it. Um, and I really appreciate you and I appreciate what you've brought to our listeners. Michael, thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes just kind of covering pieces and parts of the book. Everybody go out and get a copy of the book. Uh, listening to this podcast, go pick up the audio version of the book, which Michael's going to have as well, and the Kindle version and or pre-order your copy at Amazon. Any last parting words, Michael? You know, Craig, first of all, I'm, I'm honored and thrilled to be here with you. You ask a great question, by the way, some fantastic questions. And, you know, I know that you are very much a part of the Living the Roar Manifesto because, um, I, I, you know, we've gotten to know each other a little bit before the call here. And I think you're also a great role model for all of us. So we, we are the reimagineers that are going to change what means to be a 60, 70, 80-year-old in, in, our, in our culture, in our world. Well, everybody, everybody can make a contribution at any age. And I think it's how you're giving back, right? And Michael, what you've done is you've run up a career, you're successful, you're giving back now. And I think that's the important thing is how can we help others see this? You know, we're light workers in a sense. Everybody's Mm. a light worker. But how do you spread that light? Um, You know, and COVID was one of those things that the darkness served the light. And if you Uh really look at it, it was a very dark time during COVID. But if you Uh look at the things that were happening with Zoom and people getting together and meeting and talking and thinking about their lives, the other side of this is going to be quite a transformation for so many people. And this book Uh is a great uh, place to kick it off. So Uh thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for Mm -hmm. being on the show. You bet. Thanks, Greg. This podcast, number 878, has been brought to you by Jason Forrest, the author of a new book entitled The Mindset of a Sales Warrior. In my interview with Jason, we explore the many facets and skills that are required for a salesperson to become a top success in his or her profession. If you are in sales or marketing, please listen to this podcast with Jason Forrest because his ideas are innovative are fundamentally about improving your emotional intelligence and questioning the psychology that drives you. To learn more about Jason and his new book, please visit uh, his website at www.fpg.com. That's www.fpg.com. Tune in for more great podcasts from Inside Personal Growth. Thanks for listening.